I don't know what happened there. I think we went live twice, but what is up, everybody? My name is James DeFiori, and this is Blackballed. Back in March, I was introduced to members, ex-members of the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. And I eventually went on a path where I started interviewing several ex-members uh, and told their stories of abuse, their stories of family separation, and just basically an overall culture of weaponizing faith against the flock inside the Plymouth Brethren. During that time, uh, a dossier known as the Klondike Papers was released, and it was the communication dossier of David Wallace. David Wallace is a was a political fixer, a bag man, and he blew the whistle after he was allegedly asked to kidnap Richard Marsh and has decided that since then he was going to reveal, basically in the same way that a, a person would reveal the magician's tricks, he is now sort of lifting a curtain of what it is like to be a political fixer in Canada. And over at Canada Land, Jesse Brown and Sharice Suturan, I hope I pronounced that correctly, um, recently released a pod series entitled Ratfucker. And Ratfucker is the story of the Klondike Papers, David Wallace, and I believe the Plymouth Brethren is something they're going to cover as well. So here to talk about all that is Sharice and Jesse from Canada Land. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. Good. Um, Jesse, I want to start with you because you and I met david wallace i think around the same time period in 2018 your series Ratfucker is about david wallace um and i am i'm curious to know if the experience that you had with him in 2018 was one of the main reasons as to why you were so meticulous with reporting on the klondike papers yeah i mean i guess so i, I don't imagine that i would have um we, that we would have uh, engaged with him any differently because it's not like, you know, it's not like we understood him to be anybody significantly different now uh, than then. He was a source, somebody claiming inside uh, track knowledge of, of things political, um, what his agenda was, why he was coming to us, who he actually worked for, what was suspicious or, or I guess you know, what was true about him in 2018 and what was unknown about him then was still what was unknown about him more recently. So I think, you know, any journalist who's engaged with a guy, he, he's, he's just like, proceed with caution. He's like a walking red flag. Yeah. And Sharice, when you were out West, you guys both went out West, I believe, to interview David. Um, what were you expecting? What were you, like? What was the kind of persona that you were expecting versus what you got? Because I know that a lot of people that haven't met David um, sort of have no way of knowing what they're getting into, and he is kind of a slick talker. But this didn't seem like that, the way that you described it in the first episode of the podcast, Ratfucker. I mean, I think it's really interesting when you meet someone in the context of their home. Um, so I think that also really added to kind of how things are presented in the podcast because we did meet him, um, you know, he has the hair and he has sort of the whole persona, um, kind of that swagger that we described in the first episode. Um, and it is a little, it's different. It's like meeting kind of a movie character almost. Um, 
And you also kind of have the knowledge that he's sort of maybe creating that character for you. Um, but then you meet someone and we go into his home and you know his, his older parents are there and his dog is there. Um, and he's got like pictures of his wife and uh, like kids drawings. So it's like that does add sort of an element of humanity almost to the entire thing. Um, and not to say that all those things meant that we believed everything he said, but it does sort of help you see that person like as a person. Jesse, can you tell me why the Klondike papers proved to be such a daunting task for most editors? Uh, from what I understand, uh, a lot of editors just decided not to even bother, both based on the assumed credibility of David Wallace and also because of the way that the documents themselves were organized. Can you sort of give the audience a little bit of a glimpse as to what it was like to work with that specific dossier versus, you know, other leaked documents that that come out, like the organizational aspect and things like that? Yeah, I, I think that the key question any journalist uh, engaging with this uh, had to deal with was one of like verification. What am I looking at? Um, and before I try to figure out who's saying what and what they're talking about, you're like, you got to figure out, like, is this real? I mean, what what the Klondike papers are in a, in a very practical sense, if you if you get sent the Klondike papers, what you have is a a massive uh, PDF file um, where someone, and it was Richard Marsh, has taken a bunch of different sources, uh, different email accounts, different um, cell phones, um, phone conversations that have been turned into transcripts, and um, you know text messages from the cell phones. And it's sort of like he's done his best, and I think he did a, a really good job. I mean, it is, in a way, work of journalism to just um, try to render all of that into something that you can like read and search. Um, however, in doing that, he had to take screenshots. He had to copy and paste. He, uh, you know, like some, you know, did, did the transcriptions go through transcription software or were they transcribed by a human being? You don't know. And, and you know, if, if you can copy and paste text, you can change text. If you take screenshots, it is, you know, conceivable that you could change them in Photoshop. So you can read it in the first story. You know, the, the Canadian press did that story on Jonathan Dennis. Um, and the Alanis Smith phone logs, um, they struggled with this question of like, this seems to be Alanis Smith's like phone logs or something that, that claims to be her phone logs. How do we know that that's what this is? And what they did was, you know, the problem is that when you're trying to verify, uh, let's say emails from Jonathan Dennis, um, he's, you know, uh, arguably implicated in this. So he's yeah. not really, have, you know, doesn't have much of an incentive to say, oh yeah, that's me. I hired this guy and I asked him to get me this reporter's phone conversations. And, you know, so how are you going to verify it if the people who are most um, in a position to verify won't talk to you? And what the Canadian press did was, I think they took a random sampling or, you know, they, they, they found a bunch of other emails in the Klonic papers and they went to the recipients or to the sender, people who were not David Wallace. And they said, is this in fact what you sent or what you yeah. Um, Chad Hallman said uh, when he was interviewed, I think it was today by the Calgary Herald, that, um, that oh, David Wallace is a con man and this and that. Isn't the trickiest thing about this entire story is that he's technically right, uh, you know, and that, but the glitch of David Wallace, and I talk to him about this all the time, is that your credibility wasn't realized until you blew a whistle. Because before that, you were doing these dirty tricks. So unless, you know, there's a way to come out of that, as he did, I believe, in a way that is, 
a sort of a redemption story. But um, the glitch about David Wallace is that he has a, a track record of being dishonest. And when he, when he lifts the curtain on his own schemes, it makes people, I think, confused as to how they're supposed to approach that. Sharice, did you sort of feel that way as well? Just because, you know, that it's, it, David Wallace is a landmine in a lot of ways. And there's a, there's a lot of um, direction that you can go in that, that might be a dead end, um, you know, because of work that he's done in the past, for example. I mean, of course. I mean, anyone that either knows about his history or has seen the Klondike papers can tell you that so many of his communications are just playing people back and forth. You know, he'll go to the conservative and say, I've dirt and liberals. And he'll go to the liberals and say, I've dirt and conservatives. And he admits that that's how he makes his money um, by playing people and essentially getting um, payouts for that. And so the thing is, as journalists, like we have to take it all together and say, okay, yeah, this guy's, you know, probably playing us even, um, there's a possibility that he's playing us, but we have to figure out, you know, regardless of that, what is the, like, what happened here? What is the truth about what happened here? And so that's sort of how we landed in the Nenshi story, because even if he was hypothetically playing us for that story, it's still factual that these people were sort of colluding um, into this scheme. And it's important for the public to know that. Did you guys have to try to go out of your way to prove that he wasn't the um, designer of the story that got everyone into trouble? Like, you know what I mean? Like he was hired, but did it, um, I think it was uh, Prem uh, said that, you know, this was a a David Wallace idea. Like the the scheme was a David Wallace scheme. Um, Did that uh, give you pause at all to like say, okay, well, is he the inventor of the scheme that he's blowing the whistle on? And, and, you know, or, or was it, was he hired to do something that he didn't think of himself? I mean, a lot of the schemes are sort of him kind of going to people and saying, well, I have I have this thing or I have this thing and, and do you want to do something about it? But the way he works is that he'll get that person to kind of come up with the idea or think they're coming up with the idea. Right. So, I mean, there is probably some something to the fact that like he might have instigated it, but then it's sort of that sort of situation where everyone's pointing the finger at each other being like, well, no, they instigated it or no, they instigated it. <laughs> yeah, he told me the other day... Um, or I told him, uh, he said something about the Patrick Brown thing. And I looked at him, I'm like, dude, you were totally working me four years ago. Like I could tell you which phone calls you said something to me that wasn't, he's like, yeah, yeah, I was, I was working, but I was working. It's like, okay. it, it, it's an essential contradiction. Like the sentence, trust me, I'm a liar. Yeah. Uh, is like, yeah, like, I guess you're telling the truth either way. You're telling the truth. Um, so if his like introduction to us, you know, at least in this phase of things was I've been deceiving the press for years, you know, you proceed with caution, but like, yeah, he's telling the truth about that. He is a liar. Um, but we didn't really concern ourselves with that. Just, just as we like, I mean, we want to know everything we, that we could possibly find out about these schemes, but all of the different people implicated um, saying, no, this was David's idea. No, this was David's idea. Um, that may well be. And we're interested to like, you know, tell the story as it happened. But ultimately, it doesn't really matter because, uh, you know, the question is not, is David Wallace somebody who cooks up uh, elaborate deceptions? He is. We know that. The question is, who went along with him on these adventures? Who funded him on these adventures? You know, uh, and, and what what roles do they have? Because a lot of them 
are not professional deceivers. Uh, they're people who, who should not be doing those things. So, uh, you know, we, we certainly didn't want to take the position of like, we're going to prove that, uh, that he was just a pawn or just a hired hand. Mm. Um, we, we were just interested in like documenting what happened, but it, it really is amazing. And like, when you're reading the Klondike papers, some of it, you know, again and again, we found ourselves like, I can't believe people responded to him. I, yeah. I, I can't believe that, that, you know, they took the bait. I can't, I, and there is, you know, like, what is a con man? He certainly did some things that you would imagine a con man to do. And that, like, you find out what someone wants, what their agenda is, who their enemies are. And then you bring them a beautifully wrapped present. You say, oh, you know that guy who you want to see go down? I have amazing dirt on him. Um, and people um suspend their disbelief or their skepticism because they want it to be true and as sharice is saying we had to be careful about that ourselves because what is the gift he's bringing us that we're very excited about is there another political fixer that is sort of a, a household name even in media besides like I, the only one that comes to mind even is like a warren Kinsella or something but like I, you know what i mean like is there but that was probably two decades ago but you know, is is this the first sort of like public unmasking of a political fixer? Because I can't I can't think of one other than him. Roger Stone, you know, kind of uh, in an American context at a very high level, you know, made himself a focus of a lot of attention. And, you know, he was in a documentary recently. So, you know, it's a very different kind of, a, of an animal. And I, I, I we, we were thinking about this. Has anyone ever come forward the way that Wallace has come forward? Like, have we ever gotten to see the inner workings of the dirty side of politics right from like a confessional and i i i'm yeah. sure somebody who has a better um you know uh, background in politics might be able to cite somebody but i don't i don't know that this has ever happened before yeah i don't think so either um the the pod series is called rat fucker i'm assuming um and I actually think, Jesse, I might have seen a post of you pr from you today or yesterday um, that uh, you're having algorithm problems because of the title of your of thing. I, I know exactly how you feel. Um, when I did my uh, documentary, We Run Shit, I had to like, you know, there were festivals that were like, yeah, yeah, we can't, we, we can't even accept you because it says the word shit. Are you having difficulties with that? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a stubborn person. We could have called it a hundred different things. We could have called it the Klondike Papers, but of course it should be called rat fucker it's of course yeah. that like like i can't believe i think it's called anything that jesse yeah. was particularly adamant that we call it rat fucker Charisse, yeah. were you particularly yeah. adamant because it doesn't sound like it <laughs> no you weren't eh? there were debates many debates were had it's currently the number one news podcast in canada i think it's the number three podcast overall so people are finding it but depending on which app you use it can be difficult to find so anybody who wants to find it, just go to canadaland.com and it's really easy to find. Uh, we're, we're the only podcast that, that can't say, oh, just search for it wherever you listen to your podcasts because you might yeah. not find it. Uh, but if you come to canadaland.com, you'll find it. Um, so can you give me an idea? Because I I, I, I I listened to the first episode. I know the other episodes are available for subscribers. I honestly just didn't even have time to listen to the other two. But can you give me a preview of what the other two episodes are uh, that has been released are going to be about? Um, the first chapter was basically the Klondike Papers, right? And David and the intro to who David Wallace was. And uh, what, what's in store next uh, for the next two episodes? Uh, I guess I'll answer. Um, so episode two essentially follows David Wallace to what we believe is 
one of the last jobs that he did, which is to find Richard Marsh. Um, and I'm sure many of your listeners probably know who Richard Marsh is, mm-hmm. um, as do you. And we get in, and from there, we're getting into a lot of both Wallace's and Marsh's claims about the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. Mm-hmm. So that's essentially um, what's going on with episode two. Episode three essentially goes further and deeper into that story um, and explores more about the church and more about Wallace's uh, claims that he was hired by them. Do you think it's a cult? I I think a cult is hard to define. And I mean, I don't think I'm familiar enough with it or with the essential structures of it and with cults to really make a declaration on that. James, it doesn't matter. It it doesn't matter if we think it's a cult, you know, um, to take a position on, on that is not like our, our, our work is like, what is it? How do they work? Um, what do they have to do with these people? What do they have to do with David Wallace? Why are they, uh, are their members entangled, uh, in this story? What's the relationship with Gerald Shapur? And uh, ultimately, where we land in episode three is really trying to deal with um, where this whole thing started for a lot of people, which is at the level of conspiracy theory. Um, The way that the Klondike Papers became something that millions of Canadians heard about was a series of really audacious claims that this was this had to do with funding of the Freedom Convoy. This had to do with. a supposed familial relationship between uh, Pierre Poiliev and Gerald Chaper. Uh, you know, there, there's uh, this had to do with a, with an alleged assassination plot against the prime minister. So we go through a, a journey of like trying to verify the Klondike papers, trying to find out what the okay. And, we, and by the way, I think we got further than any other journalists on this in terms of verifying. Like, yeah, these documents are what they are real. They are. Mm. If you see that something was sent by someone that person sent it. Um, yep. we, we got to that level of confidence with it. Um, okay, so what, so what was going on? What is the story that they tell? And eventually we, we verified quite a few things. And if you heard the first episode, we, we, we uncovered this really shocking plot to get rid of a democratically elected mayor through non-democratic and deceptive means. We go a lot further and, and, we, and we, we are able to verify quite a bit. And eventually, without spoiling anything, we do have to stare in the face of the most outlandish claims associated with the Klondike Papers. So what, what we what we uh, set our sights on in episode three is, is the conspiracy stuff real? And and what, what level of truth is there to it? And how far can we get with that? Yeah, there's definitely taking it, looking at it as the papers themselves and then the claims around the papers, specifically coming from uh, people like David Wallace, Nathan Jacobson, claiming things you know, online, on TikTok, on social media that are necessarily connected to the papers or only tangentially connected to the papers, making that difference clear. Yeah, I had Nathan Jacobson and uh, David Wallace on the podcast. And, um, you know, it was funny because uh, we joke uh, over at the Dean Blundell show when uh, when David Wallace was on there that, you know, it was impossible to unpack everything that he said because he just launched one bomb after another of the most craziest outlandish like like stories ever. And a lot of them in hindsight ended up being true. But at the time, and this is what's tough about um, because I work with David now. I'm I'm producing his podcast. It's called The Fix. It's gonna premiere on the Dean Blundell oh, yeah. Network in a couple of weeks. Um, you know, we're going to treat it like a show that uh, is sort of the political dark arts equivalent of giving away the magician tricks um, and telling people like if people understood 
just how many, and I don't know what this number is, but I have a number um, and I haven't like examined, uh, I don't even know if it's possible to examine all the writings to see which candidates hired private investigators against their rivals. It is crazy. I, I don't think people understand just how like House of Cards light it kind of is out there. Um, you know, and is that sort of the undercurrent of this story is that politics is propped up by shit like that. And maybe that's part of the reason why it seems so sick right now. I mean, I think something that comes out of the papers is you just see a number of people um, in high levels of power communicating with people like David fixers, like David, Um, whether or not they actually move forward with David and hiring David to do different jobs is a different story. But I think, I mean, you can even see through more official channels, like firms like Navigator, um, it's many other PR firms that do this kind of work um, and they make a lot of money off of it. And I, I don't think Canadians should be surprised um, the fact that people in politics are using them. I mean, we know for a fact, I think uh, a couple of numbers came out in the past week that we see the Canadian government hiring PR firms. And we know this. I mean, yeah, there's, not, there, yeah, go ahead. The, the lines between the kind of like legit or, you know, uh, strategists, PR firms, uh, spin doctors, image doctors, people who don't have to operate from the shadows uh, towards somebody like a David Wallace. I think it's a very blurry thing. Um, you know, I, I got into a conversation with uh, Councillor Giancarlo Carra and some stuff that didn't make it onto the show, but. You know, I was just asking, like, why is there so much of this going on in Alberta specifically? Why is there so much rat fuckery? And, you know, like, it, and so much of it is internal. So much of it is within conservatives. And he said, listen, you know, these guys, the, the, Harper's way of doing politics and that, that school, the Calgary School of Politics, which is real politic. It's it's about strategy. It's about, you know, not really having the numbers to win. So you have to have like tricks and games and you, you've got to outmaneuver your opponents and you've got to be merciless about it. And they were doing this before the Trump era. And when they lost power, they all went home. They all went home to Alberta. And so you've got like major league spin doctors and rat fuckers and strategists working in like, you know, uh, the Bush League. I don't know. I, I don't want to say some of this is like, it's interesting to see at a level of like city councilors that there was so much like, skullduggery and 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 backstabbing going along going on um and Kara suggested to me like these guys are practicing you know a lot of these people went back to alberta and they're like all right let's see what works let's try some stuff out and and, and uh you know they're they're more than you know hopeful that they'll have a chance to do that on a national stage again i think also something that jumps out at me is just a level of confidence people have that these strategies will work in in, in a lot of the communications uh, various people will have with Wallace. Um, they just seem very confident that they can pull off a job like image smearing or, or any of the other sort of rat fuckery things that he does. Yeah, you know, Navigator to me is just like David Wallace with a nice building, right? Like it's it's you know it's kind of the same thing, <laughs> you know. Like the 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 um, I I've seen Jamie Watt um, take like even uh, Dean Blundell tells this story about how when he got fired from his job. Uh, for making comments that were deemed to be homophobic and you know he he got let go that um jamie watts job for the next year was to keep on putting more stories into media so that their competitors wouldn't 
hire him. Like that sounds more like rat fuckery than PR, doesn't it? Like, I mean, I know, I, I, I guess I shouldn't be trying to get you guys to trash Navigator on my show, but do you know what I mean? Like, you know, this this kind of application into politics where you get a PR firm, um, you know, that that behaves in a similar way, um, planting stories, hiring PIs, you know, like what what ecosystem are we do we belong to right now? And and you know, if people really knew about exactly what happens, whether it's David Wallace or Navigator, wouldn't they be kind of shocked? I mean, I, I'm, I'm happy to uh, to to, <laughs> to talk uh, negatively about Navigator because they are like the natural enemy of journalists. You know, like mm. we, we, we have a certain amount of limited resources to try to tell people the truth. And then there's somebody who doesn't want the truth told because mm. their entire livelihood, reputation, everything they built is about hiding that truth. You know, I first engaged with Navigator when I was trying to report the Gameshi story. So you've got somebody who has everything to lose hiring, you know, like their resources are essentially limitless. Like, like they, they will spend their last dollar to stop their reputation from, from going down. And they will have a war room set up of, of highly skilled crisis comms people like the former editor in chief of the Toronto Star is now a Navigator. They, you know, like they, they, they hire from journalism and their job is to stop us from doing our job. Their job is to keep us from the truth. And sometimes that's about obscuring. Sometimes it's about spinning. Sometimes it's about just throwing so much flooding the zone with bullshit so that we can't do our jobs. So uh, I, I, you know, I, I'll, I'll be careful and moderate in how I criticize them. I don't know that they've ever done anything illegal. You know, these are all things that I guess technically are like legitimate in that they're not technically illegal, yeah. but they don't serve the public they serve the wealthy they serve wealthy people and they serve wealthy people in trouble sometimes maybe even often those are wealthy people who deserve to be in trouble who, who, who have things to hide so they're on the other team you know that's who navigator is to me yeah you know what's funny about that is that um it, it's just in the last like year i realized that i was actually a freelance writer for 20 years and i was probably never really a journalist because i i just you know i was i i I pulled a lot of stunts, you know what I mean? Like I, I, I like to like spoil stories for reporters that kind of screwed me over with contracts and stuff. So I would release things just willy nilly. Um, Jesse, you know that, um, you know, and when I was working on a story about a certain anchor person and I got let go because navigator called uh, the outlet that I was working for and told me, I, you know, to take me off the story um, later, uh, like the next day, Jamie Watt appears on this anchor's ex-wife's show on a news network to talk about if the Me Too movement has gone too far, which was just like a total orchestration and a manipulation of the media in order to get protective messaging out for a client, right? Well, I, like the guy has a column in the Toronto Star. I wouldn't let him within 100 miles of, of a news organ. Like who, by, by definition, he, he, he doesn't tell the truth about who he's working for. He, he, uh, explicitly, he has an agenda that he's paid to have by wealthy clients and it explicitly is about public relations. So I, I, I don't know what's wrong with this country that we would, um, you know, I accept that people like this exist, that their services are well paid for and that they'll make more money than a journalist will ever make. I have no idea why we, why we legitimize them and uh, lend our platforms to them when they're just explicitly trying to stop us from telling the public the truth. Mm. Yeah, there really isn't 
I'd say that this type of thing tends to not be on a lot of journalists' radar. And I'm not going to blame them completely because I think that is in the nature of a, a daily news job where you don't have time to even think about it. But that is something that is problematic with the mainstream press where they are taking in press releases and just sort of like barfing it back out to the public without mm -hmm. really thinking about, um, you know, who's behind it or even putting people on their radio shows or, or on their television networks um, that are there as experts, but they have no idea who they actually represent. Um, that happens so much. And we really need to do a better job of it. You guys have a really interesting kind of piece of the media landscape because um, Jesse, I've, I've known your work for years and you were kind of like, from what I recall, uh, you know, even just trying to think back now, I don't know of another independent news outlet that was sort of seen. I don't know if it was intentionally branded like this or not as a media critic of sorts. Um, was that the sort of business model? Um, is that still, and do we need more of that? Yeah, that was the original mission of Canada Land was uh, explicitly that Canada at the time, I, mean, I don't know, it might still be the case, uh, but, th but there was no media criticism. You know, I, I at the time had, had been working for various places like McLean's and Toronto Life and before that CBC, and I was watching, I don't know, I, I had a bunch of inspiration points. Like I, I liked David Carr, the, the, the late David Carr, who was a media columnist at the New York Times, and I liked On the Media, which I still like. Uh, NPR's great media show, but I also like John Stewart, what he was doing at The Daily Show. Mm. All of these things were different forms of media criticism, media satire, media reporting. Gawker, I liked early Gawker quite a bit. And I was like, you know, nobody's doing that in Canada, and there's a lot that's messed up in Canada. Uh, somebody should be doing this. And so it was uh, much like anybody launches a YouTube channel or a podcast. I just started Canada Land as, as my podcast. And I said, okay, I'm here to do media criticism. And people responded to it. So uh, doing media criticism grew into doing media reporting, which I didn't in originally intend to do, but people started to bring me stories. Uh, it started with stories about people like Peter Mansbridge taking money from the oil industry, which was one of the main stories that any Canadian news anchor has to cover. And here he was taking tens of thousands of dollars from that industry and not disclosing it anywhere. So, uh, you know, one, once you break a story, people they bring you more tips and suddenly, and, and it's fun. So I kind of uh, I kind of stumbled into doing investigative work, and that led to the Gameshi story and many, many more. And then we just grew and started bringing more people on. And now we do a lot more than media criticism. You know, we're, we're covering politics and uh, we're doing stories on you know, historical stories, all kinds of stuff my colleagues are putting out these days. But at the core of what we do, it's still it's still a thing that needs to be done. And I think that I, I would love if there were four more things like Canada Land doing it from different perspectives because there's there's you know. And, and what media is has changed so much. I think it's not just about keeping an eye on newspapers and broadcasters anymore because the media is just like splintered into a million little pieces. So actually having conversations about it, I think, is really valuable. Where, where do you guys like this? This is a really open ended question. I apologize uh, preemptively, but what is the media in Canada now? I know it's owned by a few companies. I get that and everything. But, you know, where are we as far as being objective as far as being non-ideological as far as being you know not planting a flag on a certain side or whatever do are, are we doing okay as a western nation overall for media or no either one of you can Sharice, maybe i think it's a hard question like what what is the bar of doing okay and i think a better question might be have we ever done okay 
because I think there's this sort of yeah. old, this like sort of old idea that media is worse now than it used to be, or it's more sort of divided or um, less objective than it used to be. But I think we really need to be looking at historically has has media ever really been objective? Have has we ever ever really ever really presented the full truth of our history? And I would say no. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I think we're going through something here that uh, is really hard to make sense of while it's happening. You know, what the Internet's doing to media and communication is the biggest change in how humans communicate with each other. Uh, I think since like maybe the printing press or since broadcast media was invented. And when we say the media, our minds turn towards, OK, post media and CBC and things like that. And, you know, those are important vectors of. Like that's the authorities, right? So they get a lot of um, of our focus, and we certainly spend a lot of time looking at them and criticizing them. But from the perspective of somebody consuming media, that's just one thing. You know, you're getting a ton of American media, you're getting a ton of podcasts, you're getting a ton of TikTok, you're getting a ton of YouTube. Like, and where information hits you, it's not just oh, I listen to this show and that show. There's also just this chaotic space where stuff's just flying left, right, and center. Um, you can look at that, and as many do, and, and think these are dark times because it's just gotten so divisive and angry and how do you check a fact when information is flying at you that yeah. fast? These are all good questions, but I come at it from a bit of a different perspective because I remember a time when there were like three places that had the gatekeeper status to either let information come out or not, and nobody else really got to speak. There was a tiny little thing called alternative media. I, I, I you know, I, I owe my whole career to the fact that anybody can hop on the internet and start a media company. I, you know, I, I have to think it's a good thing that we've let the barriers come down and the gatekeepers are gone. And I still really believe in the process of journalism. I believe in, in I believe in, in verifiable fact. I'm not really all that concerned about objective journalism. I think it was never really there. Like as Cherie says, I think that was always like a way that we dressed up what we do. Like, hey, we're not taking a side here. We're just we're just passively telling you, well, well, no, you chose to be here and not there, and you chose to speak to this person and not that person. You made a ton of choices that are not objective. So I believe in honesty. You know, you be honest about what your choices are and where you're coming from. Um, but I'm, I'm excited by what's going on now. It's, it's chaotic and it can get really ugly, but it's hard to hide the truth when there's when, when, like, how do you, it used to be easy to kill a story, you know, mm. like, I mean, it's still like you, you look at the stuff in the quality papers and, and, and James, you had the question earlier, like, why did people pass on this? Cause it's sort of of ill repute. Like, it's just like, ugh, this is a mess. And it's got this guy involved who, who knows what he's up to and uh, pass. Well, if you pass on that, and like, we're these two Toronto journalists who, like, you know, months, years after the fact, found out that there was a plot to change the government in Calgary. Yeah. And like, they, and they almost got away with it too, you know, like, and it wasn't like that we're so smart or skilled. It's like, I think a lot of people just said, ah, this is like, I don't know what this is. Let's move on to the next thing. Um, but the truth came out, you know, like y y if you had a, a few more organizations like us, I think, you know, like I, I wondered this throughout, like, I wonder how much stuff like David Walsh is just one guy in this line of work. How, how you know, there are things like, Maybe. you know, <laughs> he's a unique character, but obviously yeah. there's other people doing this kind of work and the people who he was communicating with, they seemed pretty familiar with guys like this. Uh, I, I think that there are there are fixers out there. There are there. You know, most of this work never sees the light of the day. Um, but but if you're there looking for it, you know, like if you're there to receive it, then there there are some pretty fantastic stories to tell. And I, I will say, yeah, go ahead, Trish. Sorry. 
I was going to say, I will say, like, a lot, we talk a lot about, like, why the press in the prairies um, might be missing these stories. And I think a big part of it is also just the general lack of investment in these kinds of things. Like, it took us months to figure this out. Um, and I don't know what other news outlet is, is paying for that. Um, there are very few left that do. It's also kind of, um, you know, there, there's a few cities in the prairies, obviously, but, you know, if you show me um, a rural town with zero or one media outlet, I'll show you a corrupt township. Um, and I've learned this several several times. The first time I learned it was in Weyburn, Saskatchewan, and uh, I was working as a reporter there years ago. And I found out that, um, or I actually witnessed a cop dealing cocaine at a bar. And so I was like fresh off the plane from Toronto. I'm living in this small town. And I was, I go to my editor. I'm like, I saw him do it. So I figured like, maybe we can figure something out. Like, you know, sting. I don't know. Um, and they were like, oh, why would we do that story? And I was like, because a person that's supposed to protect and serve is dealing cocaine. Like, why wouldn't we do that story? And, you know, they just let me go. You know, like they didn't, you know, that was, that was it. And, um, you know, I live in a town now where uh, we, there was one media outlet, uh, you know, six years ago and they get 40 grand a year or something like that for ad dollars to that one media outlet. So that media outlet never ever reported on anything that happened at council. And then a second media company started and only reported on council and turns out they were up to their ass in scandal and corruption. So, you know, um, we have a piecemeal corruption culture in this country where it's not just the cities that are just blasé about doing stories. They don't want to do stories in rural communities because it impacts people that they know that they are arm's length with. And I don't know how to get around that. And, you know, I don't know if you, you know, I don't even know what my question is, but, you know, it's one of those things across the landscape. Like when you add Trudeau's Bill C-11, Bill C-18, when you add his media fund, which I just find to be a, a, a... terribly misguided decision i i am stuck not knowing the answer to how to um you know uh, remedy things like disinformation without having some sort of like registry of journalists but then that sounds orwellian so i don't know what the answer is like it, you know is this something that we're, we're going to be able to solve uh, it's, it's a very big question I, I i have a pretty uh optimistic maybe even idealistic attitude about this like I think that the basic economics of this are that journalists are valuable to the public in a very in a very practical way in that kind of as you suggest the day that the last journalist leaves town hall or the local legislature the next day the mayor is giving his brother-in-law a contract you know with like you know so whether or not you read the paper it's good for you if there's a journalist keeping an eye on the people in charge it's going to save you money. It's going to it's going to keep them honest. Uh, it, it's worth like for five bucks a month or ten bucks a month, whatever the subscription is. Like, don't even pick up the paper. Don't even read my website. Don't even listen to the podcast. But if we're there, keeping an eye on them, it's needed. It, and and I think that we have gotten too far away from actually just making that case to the newsreader. You know, we're making the case to the advertiser. We can deliver you an audience. Uh, and then you get into problems because some of those advertisers might run the bar where that cop is dealing. You know, there's all kinds of stuff that comes out of that. Yeah. Uh, and then now we're getting involved in uh, making a case to the government that we should be funded because, you know, uh, we're, we're the real news. And those other guys over there, that's not the real news. Those guys are bad misinformation people. So, you know, we're getting further and further away from like what our actual practical value is. 
And I think if I think if you go to a, a town, people know when they live in a corrupt town. And if you like, I believe in journalism. Like, I want to see a laid-off reporter knocking on doors to his neighbors or her neighbors and saying, "I'm just going to start my own website. Will you give me ten bucks a month? I'm going to keep these guys honest for us." And I think if you do that, you'll find that people will pay for that. And we're seeing that that is a model that kind of works. There are people like Tim Bousquet in Halifax and you know, Joey Coleman and Hamilton, there's people all around this country who are starting tiny newsrooms. And that's, that's the value proposition. You know, you, you do that until you get enough money to pay for yourself and then, okay, great. You know, like that, that you, 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 you are now the watchdog of your small town and you answer to your readership and you don't answer to anybody else. Yeah. It's funny because they still, uh, the public, um, they kind of like turn a blind eye on purpose. They, they'll read about council's corruption and then they'll just shrug. You know, and, and it's weird because nothing happened. Protests don't happen. People don't write their politicians. I, I don't really understand it other than to say it's sort of like automatic nepotism because everyone is a degree separated because they're all related or friends. Um, but anyways, that's a totally different story. I, I find it interesting because the, you know, um, there's no long game in that media fund strategy. You know, if Pierre Poilievre becomes prime minister, then where does all that money go? You know? You, you know what, what I what I actually suspect would happen if uh, after campaigning on the vilification of the press. He'll just kill it, kill the whole fund. I doubt he would do a damn thing. Really? You have to understand that the, the degrees like the guy has a very strong game in uh, appealing to the public. But ultimately, you know, Harper was a technocrat who. He didn't kill the CBC. Harper, you know, up until the point of Harper, I think liberal governments took more money away from the CBC. You know, Trudeau was the first to, to really put a lot more money back in. Harper didn't kill the CBC. He could have. And right now, the political establishment is much more afraid of a post-newspaper Canada and a post-CBC Canada than they are of uh, a left-leaning press or a right-leaning press because hmm. it's status quo. You know, if you have newspapers and if you've got CBC, they'll show up to your events. They'll cover the news. You can call up the editor if there's a problem. It, it sort of runs as it should. But if those things really do disappear and then it's like you've got Blackbald and Dean and the Rebel and there's Canada Land and then there's this. like It's just a they're afraid of the chaos of a thousand outlets that they cannot control. I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm giving you my analysis here based on, you know, I, I feel like this is a country that really likes to keep things on the level and the political culture here likes predictability. I don't believe our government when they tell us they, 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 they love the press and they believe in the press. I think they want some predictability and some stability. And I can understand that, you know, um, and I think that that a lot of people out there like that, too. It's almost like our newspapers aren't very good, but it's better than no newspapers at all because people are really afraid of the alternative. Sharice, what do you make of uh, the current landscape and, and, and where to go? And then I'm going to uh, wrap up in a, in a couple minutes. Um, yeah, I do think we're uh, definitely spitballing off of the original conversation. Um, I know. Well, hey, you know, organic conversations are good. You know, this is why I don't call myself a journalist anymore, because I realize that I just like to go off in tangents. So this is one of them. But please, because I think it's relevant um, to how the Klondike papers were covered. Right. So. Well, I mean, I, I do, I think Jesse's point is interesting. I, I think it, 
we're in a particular moment in time when anyone can make a newspaper and that is both good and bad mm -hmm. um because then we get people that make newspapers that are just rife with disinformation <laughs> and yeah. fake news um and it becomes it's becoming increasingly more difficult for the public to actually identify what you know is legitimate and what is not um and i mean i do think there is something something really interesting happening where the public is identifying problems with the press but because those problems aren't being solved they're, they're sort of trying to find media elsewhere like there is a problem with media conglomeration in canada there's a problem with the fact that the cbc um you know doesn't always look at who they're interviewing properly or doesn't always actually maintain um sort of i'm not going to say they're biased because everyone is biased but i mean sometimes they're just like not looking deeply enough into stories or their coverage or their balance um and i think people in the public know that and they question why they keep seeing the same kinds of people in the news the same kinds of newspaper anchors or or experts or these kinds of people being brought on television again and again and again and there's a lack of you know different perspectives um they question that and they start seeking out news elsewhere and so it's really on us as the press to be a little bit better and to say yeah i know we did we haven't really been the most balanced we haven't actually been you know holding the police to account or holding the government to account in the way that we should have been and it's time for us or it's even even in the way that we haven't really been looking at marginalized communities for you know the past i don't know 500 years and have only really started to do that i mean it's on us to say hey we messed up let's let's be better let's be more transparent let's actually explain how we're doing this and i think to me that's a bit of the solve of this problem i don't know if it's the entire solve but it's part of it um and i think that's actually where back to the conduct papers and back to the story i think that's where like the podcasting medium is actually really interesting because we can actually show you more about how we came to our conclusions than you can actually get in an article. Like you can read the Calgary story, but then you can actually listen to a podcast and understand the entire context of it. And people yeah. are there for it. I, I agree, Sharice. And like pe people want to know, people like have all these weird ideas about reporters and how we take our orders from this person or that person or we're in the tank for this or that. And on a podcast, you just tell people how you got there and how you did your job. And audiences want to hear it. They want to know how, how we come across this stuff. And I want to say one thing about this misinformation thing. I, you know, I, I very frequently hear people say, you know, misinformation is a problem or misinformation. People can't figure out what's real or what's true or what's false. I never hear anybody say misinformation is a problem for me. I'm constantly getting misinformed. I'm hmm. constantly getting fooled. Everybody thinks that they can figure it out. And, and, and I actually credit people with a lot of like, I think people by and large, like like we actually are better at critical reading and thinking than we ever credit anybody else for. So, you know, I, I think that the fix to this problem, I agree with Sharice, is like, it's not about the media this or misinformation did that. It's like, what are you, what are you doing? Are you doing things to become a more informed reader? Are you supporting news that actually, yeah, like, sorry, we can't turn back time. There are going to be thousands of people saying all manner of things, but it's not impossible to find the stuff that's responsible and it's not impossible to find the stuff that's credible. Are you supporting it? You know, are you telling people about it? So we're, the only way through this is like from the from the people, from news readers and journalists kind of working together. You know, the one thing I like about the podcast scene is that it, it's kind of undefined. Um, and I noticed that again with some of the guests that I've been having with Plymouth Brethren and David Wallace and Nathan Jacobson where they'll say some crazy ass shit, but I won't sit there and feel like, oh my God, I, ha I have a responsibility here to like, you know, make sure that my... 
I, I'm just, I, you know, when they go off the air, I'm just like, well, that was pretty crazy. You know, it, I, I'm not sure w- what is true of that or not, but that was an interesting interview. Like I'm looking at it as an interview and not as like, I don't perform journalism on a, on this podcast. I, I just interview people and they say what they say. Sometimes we, we dig up stories and we publish them and that's great. But you know, is there, does podcast, does podcasting have an interesting sort of like space where it's largely benefiting from it being kind of undefined like it's not really journalism it's not really television do you know what i mean like did it sneak in the middle there i'm just gonna wait till someone talks because this is (laughs) i i can always fill up space uh look it's like any it's you know you can do whatever whatever you want to do with the podcast but um it's the medium that i love because in every way that it's the opposite of everything I hate right now. Uh, everything is shallow and, and people just read the headline. They just look at a picture podcasts, you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, like it's depth. We're getting really divided from each other. We're not really recognizing each other as human beings. I find it really hard not to recognize somebody as a human being when I hear their voice, mm-hmm. they're, you know, they're, they're, they're not just some quote or some, you know, angry thing or, or some little, you know, viral moment that they're doing the, the worst thing that they ever did. Uh, you're hearing somebody explain themselves and it's hard not to sort of relate to somebody. Um, there are bad podcasts out there. There's podcasts that are making things worse. You know, you can do anything with a medium, but I, but I feel like, you know, what is lacking right now is just people actually talking to each other. You know, uh, we're, we're talking at each other and we're defining each other. And we're trying to get people angry at, at, at a target that's happening a lot out there, but on a podcast, you know, just like getting people together to, to like, I'm curious about what you have to say. I hope you care about what I have to say. Like to me, that's, that's gold right now. That's, that's, that's what the world needs now, James. What a great way to end it, Jesse. Um, the pod series is called rat fucker. It is on candleland.com. I guess subscribers have access to all the episodes now. And if you're not a subscriber, you're trickling them out over the next two weeks, something like that. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're publishing uh, on the free feed uh, one episode at a time, but there's some bonus content, including the origin story of David Wallace, how he became a rat fucker. Um, that is only available for our paying subscribers, plus some other great bonus content. And um, it looks like we may have to do some follow-ups too, Sharice. Awesome. Yeah, that, that might be coming. So keep your eyes out. Well, listen, um, I thought the first episode was great. I, I know it's going to be a successful series. It already is, it sounds like. And so uh, we'll keep an eye out for that. So Jesse, Sharice, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, James. Have a good thanks so much. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, that was good. Uh, the... One of the reasons why I wanted to have um, them on uh, is because the the reporting of the Klondike Papers and the Plymouth Brethren, I, I, I've been frustrated, as, as a lot of you know, uh, that mainstream outlets haven't picked it up. Um, there was a time when, uh, you know, when I found out that Jesse Brown was going to put a rat fucker that I was uh, that I would get upset because I've been working on sort of the Plymouth Brethren angle for so long that I feel like this bigger company. That I, and this time immediately I was like, I'm going to call Jesse Brown and see if I can uh, collab or get him on the show or, or just let him know that, you know, like I think the work itself is valuable that I don't really feel competitive. And I think, you know, realizing that uh, being a podcast host is not the same as being a journalist. Um, and I'm totally fine with that. Uh, you know, I, I'm not doing investigative reporting uh, right now. I, I am, I am interviewing survivors and things like that. And it's a totally different ball of wax. That's why I respect what Canada land has done uh, with this pod series and with the sort of brave stance in 
co-signing the credibility of David Wallace on these particular matters. Um, I should have said when Jesse was still here, Jesse and Sharish were, were still here, but um, I like David Wallace. I, I, I think David Wallace is one of the most interesting characters ever. Um, I know that he did a lot of shady stuff for a living, but a redemption story is a redemption story for a reason. I don't think the guy could be a political fixer if he wanted to anymore. And I think that the way that he got out was really um, spoke volumes about, you know, his evolution. And, uh, and so I just wanted to make that clear. Um, not just because I'm producing his podcast here on the Dean Blundell Network, but because I'll probably talking to him, I'll probably be talking to him after this podcast is over. And I just didn't want it to seem like I was thinking that some scoundrel was uh, happened to be right about something. That's, that's, that's not the case. He was a scoundrel and he'll fucking admit it. But uh, I think really what he is now is kind of a, kind of a hero. Um, you know, uh, there's been several stories because of his work that have been published over the last six months, you know, um, I don't know if I would be doing this with brethren stuff if it wasn't for Dave Wallace in some respect. So, um, you know, it, it's interesting, as I said to Jesse and Sharice, uh, you know, he is kind of the glitch in media in that his whole life, uh, his identity was, um, a person that wasn't credible. And then he blows the whistle and, you know, he needs to be taken seriously because, you know, he, he has all of, he knows where all the bodies are buried. So it's, it's paradoxical. It's interesting. And uh, I do recommend that you go to Canalland.com uh, and, and listen to Ratfucker, the pod series. I have uh, a sh my show tomorrow with Megan Murphy has been postponed. I think I have um, my show. <laughs> I, I had a writer yesterday that was supposed to be on the show named Jeff Perlman. And, um, you know, 730 rolls around and we're supposed to be live and 735 rolls around and I'm emailing him. I'm like, you still there? You know? And then I realized he lived in California. So I was like, oh, okay, it must be a time difference. So then I switched it to 1030. And then at like midnight, I, I got an email and he was like, uh-oh. <laughs> so, but it made me laugh because he immediately was like, my bad, man. I totally fucking forgot. I can't even believe I did that. Da, da, da. And the worst is when someone ghosts you when they're a guest and then they just never fucking email you again. They never call you you know, whatever it happens to be like, you know, and, and it wasn't like it could have been personal because I never met them. But uh, anyways, Jeff Perlman, uh, it's a possibility that he'll be on Thursday and that might be a late one at 1030. But uh, I will keep you posted. And until then, we will see you next time on Blackball. It is your favorite girl. That's right. It's the Ali Mars, the one and the only. Everyone else just ain't me. I am the host of Welcome to Mars, a lifestyle podcast where nothing is off the table. I have come a long way from sex and dating and have transformed the new vibe to all things lifestyle. We still talk sex, but I'm more interested in the journey, where people have come from, how they made it, and where they're going. Subscribe or follow to a brand new look and a brand new era. Welcome to Mars. Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, Google, or at theallymars.com. Because even with the new look, 
I'm still that same bitch you love to hate. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, undercurrent podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network.